Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. All right, we're going to start our Easter series, He Chose the Nails, with a, with a story that you're probably familiar with, and I've entitled it Prepped for a Post-Resurrection World. Emily Esfahani Smith in The Atlantic writes, there's a new study that cautions that there's something much more important in life to people than happiness, finding meaning or life purpose. After interviewing nearly 400 people, the study found that the two categories overlap, meaning and happiness do overlap, but there is one major difference. Happiness actually focuses on taking, while meaning and purpose focus on giving. The researchers concluded that happiness is about feeling good. It's not wrong, but that's what it's about, feeling good. Happy people tend to think that life is easy. They're in good physical health and they're able to buy the things that they need and want. The pursuit of happiness is also associated with actually being a taker in life to some degree. The study stated, if anything, pure happiness is linked to not helping others in need. You have a more self-absorbed life if your goal is just happiness. In contrast, people leading meaningful lives, compared to happiness, there is an overlap, get a lot of joy from giving to others. Having more meaning in life was associated with activities like buying presents for others, taking care of kids, serving others. People whose lives have high levels of meaning help others even when it comes at the expense of happiness. So what's your most important goal in life, happiness or meaning? New studies show that having purpose and meaning in life increases overall life satisfaction. And recent research also shows that the single-minded pursuit of happiness as opposed to meaning actually makes people less happy. Now what that study is indicating, which is actually sort of shocking, we might have a little more depth in the human condition than I thought, we're actually hardwired to think it's a part of the human condition, part of the image of God in us. Here's another example. MS patients. In a study of 132 patients with multiple sclerosis, or MS, researchers formed two groups. One of people who met weekly to learn coping skills, like how am I going to deal with this debilitating disease over time? So that's one group of people meeting weekly to learn coping skills. Another group of people met monthly and received support from another person with MS. So two different groups. The goal was to see which group fared better, those who were learning coping skills or those who are hearing from another MS sufferer. So who do you think did better? The surprise finding was that neither group fared as well as did the five people with MS who had been trained to offer support to one of those groups. That's the group that excelled. The study found that giving support improved health more than receiving it. And those five MS sufferers felt a dramatic change in how they viewed themselves and life. Depression, self-confidence, self-esteem improved markedly. The main researchers said these people had undergone a spiritual 
transformation that gave them a refreshed view of who they were. In other words, caring for others brought healing to the caregivers. Our nervous system is wired to find satisfaction and discover our own well-being by seeking the best for other people. Article, What Your Body Knows About God. They still had MS, a life-changing, debilitating disease. That didn't change, but the emotional and psychological benefits of helping others, even for people with this disease, were remarkable. They were life-changing. They're also the kinds of behaviors that change the world. That kind of selflessness changes the world. Serving others, even in the world's view, is is viewed as selfless. The world is impressed with it. In fact, the early church exploded because of, in my mind, three things. There's probably more, but they had the witness of the resurrection. They were witnesses to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead and they were committed to that as part of the gospel witness. That was a big deal. The continuing miracles which authenticated the gospel, which certainly took place during the apostolic era, that also gave credibility to Christianity to move from one people group to another. And third, the way the early church loved people and served them. Widows and orphans who were thrown aside by Roman society. The sick during plagues. Christians, churches are the ones who took care of them at their own risk and the way they loved each other. That kind of serving of the body and the world was was transforming. But that culture had to be taught and caught. It's not automatic. So in the passage today that we're gonna read, Jesus is soon going to be leaving the planet He would be dying on the cross in the next week. He's going to rise again right after that. He's going to ascend into heaven not long after that. And he needs to prep the 12 for a post-resurrection world because they're going to be carrying the church. It's going to be on their shoulders, and they needed the prepping, as we will discover in our passage today. So I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 20. If you have a Bible in front of you there, if you don't have your own, uh, when you get to the New Testament, about three quarters of the way through, it's gonna start with page one again, and this is on page 17. So page 17 of your New Testament, about three quarters of the way through the Bible there. Page 17. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, now, wherever Jesus comes from, he goes up to Jerusalem. You'll notice that throughout the New Testament. You know what the reason for that is? It's higher elevation. So that's why they always say it. Even if he's coming from the south, north, east, west, they're going up to Jerusalem. All right, that was free. All right, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way, he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. 
He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those uh, for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers, they were James and John, along with mommy. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. In other words, that's the way of the world. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, not in my kingdom. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And as they were leaving Jericho, This seems like an unattached story, but I believe it is attached, and I'll explain why later. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, We want our eyes to be opened. They moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight, and they followed him. Just a couple of quick points here, three, and then a few uh, closing remarks as well. First, the 12 still had a misunderstanding of the true nature of following Jesus. It's a cross, not a crown. Now, this is a central or key story on the road to the cross. Many gospels have this story. And what's going on is this. Time is running out. Jesus needs to prep the 12 for when he's no longer on the planet. And this is actually the third prediction from Jesus of trouble that's going to be coming in Jerusalem at Passover. So there's three different times at a minimum where he said, hey, I'm going to Jerusalem. Some bad things are going to happen. And uh, this is the third time he does it. It's the first time that he states the mode of his death. He states it's going to be crucifixion, which is not a Jewish thing. That's a Roman thing. And he also states the involvement of Gentiles who are going to be Romans. So he's getting more specific about what's going to happen to him. So Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. It's probably the weekend before. You know, so just before Passover. They're coming for the Passover week. Passover technically the day is the Friday Jesus was crucified. So he's getting ready to die. He's got his game face on. And just because Jesus is God doesn't make it easy. He's going to die as the God-man. He's human as well. He's going to be tortured in perhaps a week. He knows he's going to be crucified. We'll talk about what that looks like on Good Friday. But it was an awful, horrible death. It was the Roman way of setting an example, a warning for others. And it involved absolute torture, the tearing of your flesh from your body to the point where you could sometimes see a person's organs through their back. And then they would hang you on a cross and you might last for a couple of days before you died. Humiliation, public humiliation and death. Jews never crucified. So time is short. Once they get onto the final stretch, time with the disciples is gonna be pretty rare because he's gonna be busy next week teaching in the temple. So he's in Jericho, which I believe is about 17 miles east of Jerusalem. It's the common way to go to Jerusalem. And so he's with the 12, and he tells them about the cross that is coming imminently. And then we have this transition in the story, which is just shocking. 
James and John bring their super agent, Mommy, to negotiate for future positions in the Jesus movement. I just love it how Jesus is telling him, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. And then the next phrase, you know, we got James and John, a couple of disciples coming with mom to see what we can get out of this whole thing. It's probably a little bit of a nepotism issue going on here. In fact, there's overwhelming evidence that Jesus is probably cousins to these two, James and John, and this is probably Anti. So what's going on, and here's how we, why we believe that. If you look at the three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, and you look at sort of the crucifixion and resurrection narratives, it's very common that three women keep showing up together like clockwork. So it seems to be they're all, they're all buddies. They're in the same you know, life group together. They've been doing women together for a few years together. They just hang with each other. And so wherever one goes, you'll find all three. And so, but, but in these different gospels, different titles or different you know, relationships are assigned to them. So in Matthew, you've got Mary Magdalene and another Mary, not Jesus' mom. I believe it's Mary, the mother of Joseph or something like that. Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. All right, that's what it says in Matthew. In Mark, it says there's Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and a woman named Salome. In John, it says there's Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Jesus' mother's sister. So if these are the same woman, and we believe they are, what we've got is Salome, we've got James and John, and Mommy Salome, which is Jesus' aunt, all right? So that's the relationship. So Jesus has just predicted his own crucifixion, his own death. He just told his apostles, all 12 of them, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be crucified by the Gentiles. Next verse, James and John and Salome come to Jesus. He's rescuing humanity. He's gonna be paying sin's atonement. And here comes Salome and the mama's boys, which I think would make like a great country music band, right? No? All right. They want a deal. They have three years of time invested, and they make that very clear in one of the other passages. Hey, we've left everything to follow you. What are we going to get out of this gig? You see that in Mark's gospel. They want a deal. They've had three years of time invested. They've been in crowds of tens of thousands. They've performed miracles in Jesus' name. They're Jesus' posse. In fact, they, they believe they deserve something special. They're trending on social media platforms everywhere, and it is time to cash in. They've talked about this at home. They got mommy on their side. Hopefully, she's been trying to influence Mary, Jesus' mom. You know, hopefully, she's working you know, politically behind the scenes, but they want to cash in. In fact, later, we know when Peter is told by Jesus again, the bad things are going to happen in Jerusalem, Peter just lets Jesus have it. Like, this is not going to happen. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Like, if I can't go to the cross and pay the penalty for the sins of humanity, none of this makes any sense. And when you tell me not to go to the cross, you're acting like Satan, who doesn't want me to go to the cross. But they're thinking, it's just time to cash in. We've invested a lot, Jesus, three years. Jesus has all power. He's proven it. He's God, he's proven it, and he's claimed it. He's Israel's Messiah, which makes him fulfill all kinds of scores of Old Testament promises, he's fulfilling them. He's proven through his miracles, he has power over nature, power over evil, power over sickness, power over death. 
They have had a front row seat on his world tour, but they want something else out of this movement. They envision a free Israel, free of Rome's control. They envision world domination. Now we've got a miracle worker who can turn you know, fish and bread into feeding 20,000 people. Uh, he can walk on water. He can calm the waves and seas. Imagine if we get him at the front of the battle. I mean, what could Jesus do for us? That's the way they're thinking. They're thinking Israel nationalism. That's what they're thinking. They're not thinking son of God dying for humanity. They want world domination and they want theirs. Cabinet positions in the new kingdom. Unlimited access to the cafeteria and the company's chef. Season tickets to the Galilee Thunder. Access to the condo in southern Greece. I mean, they want everything they can get out of Jesus. But it's not what Jesus came to give them. Because they've misjudged the nature of discipleship. We're three years into the ministry, and they've misjudged what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's creating a different kind of movement. And they're not prepared for it, and he's going to be gone very soon. So in Matthew 20, Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Now, just to be fair, the ten weren't necessarily upset at the idea, just the fact that they were last in line. I'm not sure they weren't trying to get their mummies on speed dial too. I'm not assuming it was just two of them that had this problem. Jesus was dealing with some underachievers. After three years, they had missed the point and he's ready to leave the planet. They wanted crowns, not crosses. And if Jesus left the world in their hands at this point, there isn't a church of Jesus Christ like there exists today. They needed this. Second, the 12 still had a misunderstanding of Jesus' view of success. It's how many you serve, not how many serve you. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the world around us, lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It's not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gets right to the heart of the issue. Worldly success, the way we're judged in the world, is sort of how far you get up the food chain in an organization. It's authority over others. That's the way the world views success. Now, that is not wrong inherently. Jesus isn't saying that's wrong. It's not wrong to have a position of authority. If it was wrong to have a position of authority, none of you should be a boss. None of you should own a business. None of you should be a politician. None of you should be in charge of anything. If just being up a level in authority in an organization was wrong. Jesus says that's the world. But in his kingdom, Serving people is a sign of Jesus' DNA in you. It's a sign of Jesus' influence because it's not normal to put yourself below others. 
What's normal is to try to climb the ladder. And again, not necessarily wrong, but in his kingdom, what will make it grow is putting yourself and your needs below other, or above others and putting yourself below others. And that's what he's trying to explain to them. It's selfless, but it's powerful. It's world-changing, sacrificial, pure service always impresses the world, even the unsaved world. And Jesus said, that's gonna be the new kingdom at work. He says, it's exactly what I am going to do, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus wants this heavenly value in you and me. Now the third point, which I've just called Appendix A, because it doesn't seem to fit. It's like, we just got this story that's shoved in here and it's placed in here in multiple books of the Bible, right at this spot. Jesus practices what he preaches. So this is just a little bit of a hermeneutical clue to trying to understand gospel literature or gospel narrative literature. Often when you get to gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there is no clear statement from the author telling us why he included the story. So they assume that you can judge why the story's included by its content or maybe by an editorial comment from the author or maybe by how the stories are grouped together, their placement. So you might have a teaching section and then a story. And I think what's going on here, and this would be my view of this, the proximity to what Jesus has taught is, is sort of the clue here. Jesus says, hey, we're about serving others. And then what's there? What did Matthew include? A great example of Jesus serving others, the underserved. So I think that's what's going on here. I believe it's a part of this whole narrative because it's just an example of Jesus practicing what he's preaching. Otherwise, we really don't know why it's stuck in this spot. So they're leaving Jericho about 17 miles from their final destination, which is going to be Jerusalem. It's just before Passover week. There are going to be a couple of million people in and around Jerusalem in the next seven days. And the reason we know that is at one point, the Romans uh, did a census of the Passover meal. I think I've said this before here. They did a census of the Passover meal that would take place like the next Thursday night or Friday. And that Passover meal is to be eaten by 10 people, I believe, according to the rabbis. I don't know if that's an Old Testament command or it was just rabbinic teaching. But 10 people, at a minimum, were supposed to eat the Passover meal. So they'd sacrifice a lamb, they'd take most of it back home, and they would cook it, and 10 people shared that lamb. And so the Romans did a census a little after this, and there were like 250,000 lambs sacrificed at the temple. Times 10, 2.5 million people were actively a part of Passover week in the time of Jesus. So this is going to be a huge sort of religious vacation week. And, and Jesus is, is in Jericho. Jericho was like one of the main roads going into Jerusalem. Jericho was full of priests who served in the temple. A lot of them lived in Jericho. And so it's a very, it's a wealthy town. It's a little bit further uh, east of Jerusalem. Uh, it, already the Passover crowds are coming through. So Jesus is there. There's a big crowd. He starts moving that day. He's going to head towards Jerusalem. He's leaving Jericho, so he's on the west side of town. They're leaving the city. A big crowd has been kind of trying to follow him. He's a miracle worker. They're aware of him. They're wanting to go with him. There's sort of some messianic hopes, like he might be the one. They're anticipating some teaching. They're anticipating maybe some miracles. So Jesus is 
on. And everyone wondered what he would say or do. And a large crowd was already gathered as soon as he started moving. Two men are sitting on the side of the road on the edge of town. One of them's name was Bartimaeus. I believe we get that from the Gospel of Mark, son of Timaeus, which means he was prominent enough in the early church that they recorded his name. Matthew doesn't record his name. I believe Mark only talks about Bartimaeus. Matthew says Bartimaeus had a buddy. Two men sitting on the side of the road on the edge of town. They're beggars. They're blind men. They have no hope that they can do anything functional in society and that economy. So every day they were dropped there by family members and they would beg. It was a good place to beg because it's on the road to Jerusalem where people would give alms to the poor and so on. So I mean, it was a good place to be, but it's not the life they wanted. That had been taken away from them. They had heard about Jesus. I mean, one thing that happens when you lose one sense, you become a little more acute with the others. They'd been sitting on the side of the road for years together and they'd heard the rumors about Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps some relatives had told them about Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, if anybody can heal a blind man, it's a person who can cast out demons, who can walk on water, who can stop the forces of nature in a storm and who can heal sickness and and death. If anyone could help them, it would be Jesus. And so probably in their hearts and minds, they've had some fantasies of meeting Jesus and thinking, Maybe if we ever met him, maybe he would do something for us. And so they're hearing the Jesus talk right around them, and they're on the side of the road. They, they start calling out because if anyone needs a miracle, it's a blind man in the ancient world. And so they start calling out for Jesus. But, but the crowd wasn't feeling it. See, the rabbis of the day believed that God judged people in this life, not just in the life to come. So this was a brutal theological position taken by the Pharisees and others of Jesus' day. A bad situation in life indicates judgment for somebody's sin. So the Pharisees' view would be these two blind men, well, they deserved it. I mean, we don't know if they did it or their parents did it. Remember the other story in the gospel? I believe it's a paralyzed man. First first question is, who sinned, this man or his parents? It's like, really, what a heartless view of a broken, fallen world. But that's the way they were coming from. So they didn't have compassion on people like this. They thought they had just gotten theirs. So they're not pushing Jesus towards this ministry opportunity. They view it as, well, God is judged. You know, so be it. And they're actually trying to prevent these two blind people from getting to Jesus. So they're there on the edge of the crowd. They can't see. I don't know if they're seated yet or if they're, still, if they're standing up yet, but they're saying, Jesus Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And I believe the tense there would be uh, the present tense, which means continuous action. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Lord, where, where is he? Lord, son of David, have mercy. And they're crying out top of their lungs. And the religious crowd is like, come on, guys, be quiet. Jesus is doing big Jesus stuff here. There's no place for you. Really, the undertone is, you don't deserve Jesus' attention. You got what you deserve. Shut up. We're busy here. But that won't change the world. And that's not who Jesus is. And that's not what we model. Jesus does stopped, called them. What do you want me to do for you? Pretty basic question from Jesus. 
Do you want him to say it? And there's a huge crowd around all of this, and everyone is quiet. You could hear a pin drop. He said, Lord, we just want our eyes to be opened. Moved with compassion, Jesus reaches out, touches both of them in the face, on their eyes. They could see. Now, I believe the reason the story is here is because Jesus has just taught about it, just taught about serving. He's in this moment where he's headed to the cross. Couldn't be a bigger moment. He's going to die within about a week. And yet he stops and he serves a person who was judged and neglected and left aside and thrown away. It's that kind of example that Jesus knew would change the world. The disciples are bickering about who's in Jesus' cabinet, who's going to be in the inner circle, positions of power and authority. They're trying to manipulate behind the scenes. They got mama working for them. And Jesus is serving the forgotten. And only one of those perspectives will ever change the hearts and minds of the world around us. And Jesus wasn't going to die and rise again with a ragtag group of 12 who don't get it. Just a couple of apps as we close here. Is the gospel I embraced more about a cross or a crown? Now we've talked about this a lot, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this at all. Talked about persecution a couple weeks ago and that we signed up potentially for martyrdom. That's the movement. Jesus was killed. He said, you know what? They're not going to treat the servant better than the master. If they killed me, they're probably going to kill you too. So we've been spoiled by freedom as Christians in a modern world. But we've done a bad job in the Western world of kind of getting this right and telling the gospel honestly. And so people have been told by pastors and Christian leaders, you know, for the last 20 or 30 years, you know, hey man, you put Jesus in your life. That's great. It's going to get better. It's awesome. You know, whatever you didn't have before, you know, God's there now to help you. It's not exactly the gospel that sold in the New Testament. And so then when life doesn't turn out better as a result of following Jesus, there's great disappointment with God. Jesus didn't make my life better. In fact, it's just as hard and maybe harder. And then that drives Christians away who had a shallow view of the gospel. Because disappointment with God comes from faulty expectations that we have with God in the first place. God didn't promise an easy life. He didn't promise a pain-free life didn't promise success, didn't promise a crown. Our leader promised a cross. We've been fortunate to have good lives in the Western world, but our leader promised a cross. Sometimes the problem with us is we kind of didn't hear it right the first time, the gospel, that Jesus loves us, he died to pay the penalty for our sins, and to get the benefit of that, we embrace him as son of God, savior, and Lord. Doesn't mean everything's gonna get better, it just means he's in charge of our lives and we'll go to the ends of the earth to follow him and obey him. Second, how's my serve versus my need to be served? Do we volunteer? Do we see needs around us? Do we solve needs around us, both in the church and in the world? I gotta tell you, 
when we have a need here and we just put it out there, I was pretty impressed a month or two ago. We're like, hey, we could use some Sunday school teachers. And I think we had like five or seven people immediately volunteering. And here you can't like go to the first service and then teach Sunday school. It's like, we're going to miss church, but we're going to go, we're just going to serve. We're going to be with kids. We're going to teach them about God. You do respond. Thank you. But do we have hearts to serve? Do I do things unnoticed and unrewarded? That's a great question about service. I like that as a heart test. On September 28th, 1882, so not 1982, 1882, so back in my preschool years, the Worcester Ruby Legs from Massachusetts played the Troy Trojans from New York in a pro baseball game. It was a famous game in pro baseball history because it set a record for the lowest number of fans in the stands. I don't exactly remember what happened during COVID, so this may not apply anymore. Just give me a little grace. Six people watched the Trojans trounce the ruby legs four to one. That record stood for almost 125 years. And then just in April of 2015, early in that season, the Baltimore Orioles and Chicago White Sox played their game in front of empty seats, zero fans. This bizarre development was mandated by Major League Baseball because of protests and outbursts of violence in the city of Baltimore. In other words, we can't put people together in a stadium because it's too dangerous. Here's how an Associated Press article reported one incident from the fanless game. Chris Davis might have hit the quietest home run for the home team in Orioles history as the slugger pounded the ball deep onto Otaw Street, just a few feet from where fans normally would have sprinted after a chance to catch a souvenir. There was almost nothing to hear. The only muffled cheers came from a pocket of diehards locked out of Camden Yards yelling, let's go O's. I told that story because that's what not, not what baseball players are used to. They're used to tens of thousands of people screaming their names and thrilled when they do something well. But I say that to say this. What if all of our service went unseen? How much would we serve? That's the purest form of service. When we do something because it's in our heart to do it, God has prompted us to do it. Nobody's going to see it. Nobody's going to applaud You know, I would like to think that I've given my life to serve the Lord in ministry. But I gotta tell you, some of you serve way more than me in this sense. I'm paid to be up here. It's my job. It goes seen. If I do something good and meaningful, many of you will say, hey, thank you, Pastor, that was really good. And I'll say thank you. But it's all seen. What's really impressive are when people are here doing things that are seen very little. The worship team practice on Tuesday night so that things go well on Sunday. The connecting group leaders who are always connecting with Brennan about who they can help connect in the Bethany community and give them Christian friends and relationships. The volunteers who are here on a regular basis, I don't even know all the stuff we do. All I know is we help a lot of families with food here and they're here packing all kinds of food boxes and food bags all the time and you don't know that but we minister to a lot of people. Volunteers who go to hospital and pray for people in need. People who are elder emeritus, others who are on the prayer chain. They'll go visit somebody in the hospital. They pray for them. You don't know about that. Sunday school teachers who were there today with six kids. And you won't know who taught Sunday school today. And those kids won't remember it on Tuesday. Ushers, greeters, etc., etc., etc. How's my serve versus my need to be served or seen? And third... Do I see the big picture when I serve? I love this illustration. In his book, Leading Across Culture, James Pludman 
reflects on an experience that taught him the eternal value of service and working hard, even at what others might call menial jobs. So when he was in high school, he worked at a Christian camp under the direction of an outstanding leader named Hiram, or Hi Johnson. One day, Plutman writes, we worked until dark trying to finish a staff house before the camp season started. My shirt was soaked with sweat. My hands blistered from shoveling sand around the foundation. I was beginning to feel sorry for myself when High Johnson strode around the corner of the building. He watched what we were doing for a while, and then he quietly reminded us that the staff who were moving into this house would be a big help to the camp. Then he said something I'll never forget. Your shoveling will, in the long run, be used to the Lord to bring a lot of campers to Jesus. Man, we started shoveling with a renewed sense of purpose. Now we were not just a bunch of dirty, sweaty high school kids tired of shoveling mud. We were instruments of God Almighty to bring people to himself. What a lesson in leadership. Our view of the task shifted from shoveling sand to building the kingdom. You never know. You never know that quiet, private service that you do that's unnoticed by many, how it can impact the world for Jesus. You don't know what kid you teach in Sunday school that's going to end up having a tremendous influence in the kingdom. You don't know how much it matters. I'm going to close with this illustration. Pearl Harbor, wonderful movie. I don't think it's the latest one, but the one with Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett tells the story of two friends, Rafe and Danny, who survived the attack on Pearl Harbor and enter World War II as fighter pilots. But in training before the war, Rafe is one of America's top fighter pilots. When America holds back from entering the war, which they did, Rafe volunteers to go fight with the British in their fight against the Germans. The British were in it for a long time before the Americans joined, as you know. It was risky, but he accepts the challenge. So he arrives in the English airfield. He walks by Spitfire fighters that are shot up from the previous day's battle and is greeted by the commander of the British squadron. As the commander shows him the plane he will fly, a messenger announces to the commander that two more British planes have just been shot down. Good chance the pilots are dead. The commander turns to Rafe and he says, are all Yanks as anxious as you to get themselves killed? Rafe doesn't hesitate. He says, I'm not anxious to die, sir. I'm anxious to matter. I'm anxious to matter. That's what serving does, according to Jesus. It's not a better way to matter than to put the needs of others above your own because it's that kind of perspective that is undeniably unnatural and changes the world. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. And I pray that each one of us would be a reflection not of the two disciples who came with mom to get a good deal, but of Jesus who died on the cross for us, who gave his life as a ransom for many. We all, we all need to be better at this. I thank you for so many who serve here so quietly and behind the scenes and often unnoticed. Thank you for them. Thank you for the many more who will in the future continue to come into the doors of Bethany. Pray that you would use us to be a light, to reflect the heart of Jesus in Calgary here. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, 
please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect, or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.